0: Well, hello. My name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Welcome back, everyone. This will be part two of the Sean Ouellette story. And I'm changing it up a bit because I have found that trying to put out two podcasts on Fridays is unsustainable. I started this true crime podcast last fall. Many of you know that I'm a radio host and I have been on the radio in Boston for a long time. And one of the things that I have done for a number of years is host a show called Boston Emissions. It was on WBCN WZLX here in Boston for a long, long time in the spring of 2018, it was canceled on that radio station, WZLX. It was taken over by a big radio company. Long story, don't need to get into, but now it's completely independent, which is good. Crime of the Truest Kind has been something that has been on a every other week Friday release schedule, and I need to change that. Ultimately, the goal is to release an episode every week, but at present time, I just don't have the, what's that word, the bandwidth (laughs) to do that? I put a lot of work into research and I just totally don't want to half-ass an episode. So it takes me a little longer. In time, I will get faster. I'm going to be completely honest with you who are listening to the show faithfully right now. I want to make sure it's a good show. I want to make sure I get as much information as I can for the families of these people. And we need to remember that. These people have died tragically, but there's still families that are left behind. So I need to be respectful of them. So I want to tell a good story. I'm moving the show to an every other Wednesday release schedule. We'll see how it goes. You can tell me what you think about it. Follow online. I update pretty frequently with what's going on on Facebook, Crime of the Truest Kind. Instagram, at Crime of the Truest Kind. On Twitter, at Truest Kind. I post on TikTok, at Truest Kind. And sign up for the True Crime List at Crime of the Crimeofthetruestkind.com where you will be emailed about every new episode as it posts any new blog entries that I put up at the website. Very quickly, thank you so much to the Buy Me a Coffee supporters. Sandy, 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 Brooke, David, Mark, Jean, Lee, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much to all of you who wrote reviews this week. I got a lot of reviews this week. I love every single one of them. Here's a couple real fast. Deuce Eight seven four says fascinating. Angel's presentation is on point, very respectful of the victims. Evil walks among us. Lock your damn doors. That's what I always say. Uh, here's another quick one. Thank you, Jake. God damn it! Quality, quality, quality. The details in this podcast are exquisite. Perfectly sets up the time and vibe for the locale where these heinous murders take place. The fact that I was driving by Hedgehog Park while listening to the Hedgehog Park murders episode didn't add to the story as much as Angel puts into it. Hit that subscribe. Do yourself the favor. Hedgehog Park is the Leanne Milius, Kim Farah episode, Salem, New Hampshire. Go back and listen to it. Today's episode is part two. If you have not heard part one of the Sean Millett Canton, Massachusetts story, please go back and listen. In the future, when I have multiple episodes for one topic, I will not wait two weeks in between. So let's get to it. Sean Ouellette, Canton, Massachusetts, part two of two. 14-year-old Canton High School freshman Rod Matthews is arrested for the murder of Sean Ouellette, another Canton High School freshman after he's been missing for three weeks, and another kid from town writes the police an anonymous letter. Detectives had spoken to the Matthewses on several occasions, but it was on their fourth visit to the house that Rod Matthews admitted to having spent time with Sean on the day he went missing. We learned that a health teacher had gotten a concerning note from Rod Matthews weeks before the murder. Maybe if the teachers and school authorities had been more alert, his behavior would have prompted involvement. Maybe psychological testing to determine if he needed professional intervention. I don't know. But maybe. His doctor just doled out Ritalin, but never kept track of his treatment, his progress, or his behavior. And it was the 80s. I get it. Shit was just very different then. Car seats weren't really a thing. You just laid the baby on the seat. Cars full of smoking adults with the windows rolled all the way up. Little kids could buy cigarettes. Didn't matter for who. Real ones. We rode our bikes in the road with no helmets or shoes. Women even drank when they were pregnant. Like, a lot. It's amazing we're not more messed up. Canton schools were reluctant to provide special education for students who could get by, however marginally, in mainstream classes. Press reports wrote that the school system was somehow negligent. This greatly upset the people of Canton in 1986. Why wouldn't it? Let's be real, though. If it was happening in Canton, it was happening in a lot of other school systems. According to Samuel Bernstein, a former Canton School Adjustment Counselor, students like Rod Matthews rarely receive complete educational and psychological evaluations, unless the parents demanded it. Bernstein was reportedly so frustrated by the system's resistance that he quit, and he went into private practice as a social worker, saying administrators were worried that the test results could force them to pay for tutoring or placements in private schools under the state's Chapter 766 law. That information was taken directly from a Boston Globe story by Daniel Golden, dated May 22, 1988. The 766 law, according to Massachusetts Advocates for Children, The enactment of Chapter 766, passed in 1972, served as the model for the first federal special education law. Chapter 766 helped bring thousands of students into more inclusive educational settings and required team evaluations, annual reviews, and individual education programs known as IEPs. It also required that local school systems educate every student in their community and fund appropriate educational costs. Bet had to have had them on the pins. They didn't want to spend that extra money from the budget. Canton School Committee member Marilyn Rodman was quoted as saying, Sometimes people think because there's a little problem, they want their kid core evaluated when that's not the problem. His parents and their parenting will always be targets in the story. Rod Matthews may have been an unplanned arrival in a rocky marriage. Um, a lot of us were. His parents split up for the first of their seven separations, each of which lasted at least a month, when Matthews was four years old. During the separations, the family created the illusion of togetherness. In truth, though, it's kind of admirable that they tried to do that, really. It may not have proved to be very helpful in the long run, however. Father Ken Matthews would be at the Canton house to have lunch or dinner with the family before heading back to his Dorchester apartment for the night. Maybe the kids saw through it, but Rod Matthews told his psychiatrist after his arrest that his parents had never separated. Ultimately, we want to know why a killer kills. Isn't that what attracts a lot of us to the true crime genre in the first place? What was it about Rod Matthews' life or lack of living that led him to kill so mercilessly? I'm not sure that we'll ever know. He was delayed as a kid. Slow in learning to talk, he saw a speech therapist. Throughout his schooling, his verbal skills and word retrieval remained below grade level. Psychiatric tests given after his arrest showed difficulty articulating his thoughts, something that may have contributed to his actions. As a small boy, he hid and cried when adults tried to take his picture. But as he grew older, he craved attention. He and Robbie Peterson became friends in third grade. They used to ride bikes together. Robbie's mother remembered the day that Rod Matthews ran into her house shouting, Mrs. Peterson, you're lucky I'm here. I made it all the way with no brakes on my bike. She said they laughed at Rod's shenanigans for years. Rod's pranks were less hysterical for his elementary school teachers. When he got down on all fours and bark like a dog, or he'd wander over to the window and just stare outside, he landed in Principal Turley's office, He had a reputation as a disciplinarian who believed in making bad boys cry. Principal Turley testified at the trial. The older he got, the more trouble he got into. The last two years, he'd be in my office for disciplinary reasons at least once a week. He didn't seem to respond. Rod never cried in my office. Also, a man who wants to make little boys cry will never sit well with me, even if it was the 80s. His big and lording voice would be heard down the hallways as Turley would lecture a delinquent kid to tears. Not Rod Matthews, though. The more he shouted at him, the more he grinned. That becomes something doctors later explain away as a defense mechanism. Perhaps personality disorder entered into that equation. Unable to affect his behavior, Principal Turley assigned him to the school's strictest teachers and then warned administrators at the middle school to be ready for him. Meanwhile, we do know that he was being treated with Ritalin and had been on it for several years without any associated therapy. Its effect on him may never be determined. According to neuropsychiatrists, the drug cannot incite a well-adjusted child to violence, but it can exacerbate an existing mental illness, particularly when, in Rod's case, the drug is prescribed without psychological evaluation. Drug treatment began when he was in the fourth grade, when his teacher told his mother, Janice Matthews, that the boy needed medication to calm him down. The family pediatrician, Theodore J. Goodman of Canton, prescribed the drug without giving Rod any examination beyond a routine checkup. Although the best-known reference book for physicians says Ritalin should be part of a total treatment program, which typically includes other remedial measures, Dr. Goodman did not arrange for any other treatment such as psychotherapy. After the murder, a psychiatrist who examined Rod concluded that the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder was most likely in error. Ritalin did not bring peace to Rod Matthews. Three weeks after he started on the drug, his teacher called Janice Matthews to ask, Did Rod take his pill? He's not acting like it. His mother checked in with the doctor and was told not to expect any miracles. She stayed on course with the treatment and kept him on Ritalin for five more years, although its curative power did not grow with time. He seemed to almost become reliant on it. While he took small doses and only on school days. He began every school year without medication. But after a few weeks, when his nerves acted up, he sought refuge in Ritalin. Sidebar, if I may... I don't like when a serious condition is mentioned time and time again, but no information is shared to support what it even means. And I'm learning too. Parents of kids diagnosed with these conditions and the kids themselves deserve a better understanding. ADD and Ritalin was a hot-button issue in the 1980s. It began making its way into the mainstream, but it wasn't new. The FDA approved the psychostimulant Ritalin, also known as methylphenidate, in 1955. It became more popular as an ADHD treatment, and that's as the disorder became better understood and diagnoses increased. The medicine is still used today. Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder is a common neurodevelopmental disorder most commonly diagnosed in children. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, The average age of diagnosis is seven. Boys are twice as likely to be diagnosed as girls. Adults are also diagnosed with it and treated. I actually think I have it, and I'm not making a joke. It was originally called hyperkinetic impulsive disorder. It wasn't until the late 1960s that the American Psychiatric Association, or the APA, formally recognized ADHD as a mental disorder. And it's changed. The APA released a third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders called the DSM in 1980. They changed the name of the disorder from hyperkinetic impulse disorder to attention deficit disorder, ADD. Scientists believe hyperactivity was not a common symptom of the disorder. The listing created two subtypes, ADD, that's ADD with hyperactivity, and ADD without hyperactivity. You following me? I remember when neighborhood kids were labeled with something called ADD and being put on special diets by their mother. What that mother should have done, in addition to her special no butter or more butter diet, I can't remember which one, was take care of her kids. Discipline wasn't a concept that that family embraced. And ADD became a catch-all diagnosis for lots of kids. Many families and doctors alike kept it on the surface level and did no more investigation on what might be going on with the kid, emotionally or otherwise. Many psychologists and school officials insisted that Ritalin was the best treatment for children suffering from hyperactivity or the attention deficit disorder. And as a matter of routine, Matthews was put on Ritalin as a means of controlling his unacceptable behavior. So, Ritalin became the defense's go-to for why a 14-year-old kid with a history of bad behavior murdered another kid. Matthew's defense included claims that Ritalin worsened his severe mental problems. And I was curious if Ritalin was still prescribed, seeing as its cooler cousin Adderall was on the scene. And it is. According to American Addiction Centers, Ritalin is considered an effective treatment for ADHD and is commonly used along with counseling and other non-medical therapies to treat the condition. Ritalin does have some associated risks for certain people. The drug can raise blood pressure and heart rate. Ritalin could also slow the development of children and adolescents who take the drug. We do know that Matthews was small for his age, as evidenced by how his appearance changed after he stopped taking Ritalin in prison. Shyamalette was also taking Ritalin, by the way, and it was reportedly helping his hyperactivity. Attending a different school nearly every year affected Sean. His behavior suffered as did his grades. He was put on Ritalin for four years without backup treatment, such as therapy. He was falling behind in seventh grade in Hull, and he got suspended for dropping a stink bomb down a stairwell. That's actually a pretty funny phrase, a stink bomb down a stairwell. His mother found herself temporarily without appropriate housing and sent Sean and his sister Yvonne to live with their father in Brookline. It's there he got the best support of his school tenure with the Brookline school system. He was considered immature, so at the recommendation of school counselors, he was placed in group therapy. Daily progress reports went to his father, who made sure he did his homework. This extra attention helped, and the structure he got there in just one semester in Brookline strengthened his study habits and pulled up his grades. By that time, his mother had found a subsidized apartment in Canton for families of handicapped persons and was able to bring her children home. Thomas Willett thought about trying to keep the kids with him in Brookline, but decided they ought to be against him in court. Rod Matthews' behavior did not improve in middle school. His records show that he was given 15 detentions and three one day suspensions in seventh and eighth grades for such offenses as refusing to cooperate in class, screaming obscenities, and throwing bananas in the cafeteria. He was not receptive to his Christian studies at St. John's Church, where he was suspended during his 8th grade year for misbehavior. He returned in ninth grade but scoffed at the teachings. His parents seemed resigned to his behavioral problems, and his mother grew accustomed to driving by the school to pick him up after yet another detention. At one parent's night at the middle school, they did ask an administrator whether they should be concerned about him, to which they were told... Oh, don't worry about it. He's a good kid. It's just his age. That is unfortunate. It does seem the family sensed there was more to his behavior than stages of growth and maturity. It was more than that. As he graduated from middle school and started high school, what were once pranks became alarming and dangerous. He liked fireworks, explosives, and was becoming a full-fledged pyromaniac. He would light newspapers on fire at home and set fires around town. One disturbed friends so much that they put it out with the snow. He was torturing animals. He put lit firecrackers in the mouths of fish and dead cats were showing up in the neighborhoods. Now we've learned a few things about setting fires and animal abuse. Classic symptoms of psychosis and, if left unchecked, they frequently lead to serious violence. If you look into the history of most serial killers, those are two prime factors that determine their behavior later on. Am I saying that Rod Matthews was a serial killer? I'm not. Am I saying that there was potential for him to cause greater violence? I am. He did some odd things, he sealed the cracks around the playroom doors with rags, complaining of a draft. He was obsessed with cleanliness and took frequent baths. Perhaps a form of OCD. Was that a diagnosis for kids in the 1980s? It appears that the typical age of an obsessive-compulsive disorder is 19. According to a Stanford Medicine's OCD program, age at onset, OCD usually begins before age 25 years and often in childhood or adolescence. Obsessive-compulsive disorder was described as early as the 17th century. When the Oxford Don, Robert Burton, reported a case in his compendium, The Anatomy of Melancholy, 1621. Who said you wouldn't learn anything from this? The modern concepts of OCD began to evolve in France and Germany in the 19th century. By the late 20th century, we began to fully realize the biology of this mental disorder as neurochemical and brain imaging techniques became available. OCD is believed to be a combination of genetics, temperament, and life stressors. Matthews developed an indifference to pain. A dentist was stunned by his refusal to use anesthesia to treat three fillings. There was one occasion when he was working with his father's tiling company. A thick plank fell on his head. Other workers on site ran to help. But he was unfazed. And despite being treated for ADD, Matthews had an alarming capacity to sit still for hours at a time repeating the same words and phrases each time he described the murder. And his inability to feel physical pain suggested an unusual detachment from his own feelings. Whether this chronic, atypical psychosis, as one psychiatrist labeled it, stemmed from a physiological dysfunction or emotional deprivation or both, remained unclear. Such distinctions held little interest for Norfolk County prosecutors— They were determined to try Rod Matthews as an adult because of the brutality of his crime. At a hearing at Stoughton District Court, they argued successfully that he was a significant danger to the public and could not be rehabilitated. Rod Matthews wasn't a complete stranger to Jeannie Quinn. As the one classmate at Canton High that was friendly to him, Sean brought his new buddy home one afternoon a visit that ended very quickly when she caught Matthews jamming a toothpick in their cat's mouth to wedge it open. On November 17, 1986, Sean told his mother and stepfather that he was saving up to buy firecrackers from Rod Matthews. They granted permission, but on one condition, not on school property. And go over to his house, Jeanie Quinn told her son, which is universal mother code for don't bring any of that nonsense over to this house. Hindsight is 2020, as they say. And when we look back at the rows and rows and rows of complete red fucking flags from this kid, it's easy to say that somebody could have done something with what they knew, like that health teacher that got it written in a note. We don't know what condition this killer suffers from. There appears to be a personality disorder I know it's going to shock you when I say this, but I am not a doctor. We need to be careful when we toss those words around. Psycho. Sociopath. Before Columbine knocks suburban safety and domesticity on its ass, schools only really dealt with the safe stuff. The three Ds, remember? Dating, drinking, and divorce. Admittedly, it's hard for grown-ups to distinguish between what's relatively benign kid stuff. Someone called it youthful hijinks in more serious, lasting behavioral problems. Ever try to talk to a kid about their feelings? Lots of shrugging, eye-rolling, looking through you, trying to find their Game Boy? There was very little that would persuade teenagers to spill it, especially if they don't even understand it themselves. No one seemed to bother to find out what was going on with Rod Matthews. The kid actually told someone what he was thinking about doing, but no one did anything about it. That health teacher had it in writing and tore it up and threw it away. His parents, Ken and Janice Matthews, seemed to give him whatever he needed. Every material possession a kid in 1986 could want. Computer, VCR, that predated DVDs, and was the original Netflix. They had a swimming pool. Every kid likes a pool. But reportedly, no one reacted in a rational way about Rod Matthews' attraction to fire. He had a habit of lighting rolled newspapers on fire while sitting in front of the television. That gets a solid what the actual fuck out of me seriously. I wish I had more context, but at face value here, we see a family that is either in denial or a kid that has the house living in fear. On December 13th, 1986, he was arrested and arraigned in the Stoughton District Court in juvenile session on a charge of delinquency by reason of the murder of Sean Ouellette. Between April 24th and May 27th, 1987, probable cause and juvenile transfer hearings were conducted. The judge found probable cause, dismissed the juvenile complaint, and ordered that Rod Matthews be transferred to the Superior Court Department for arraignment as an adult. On July 5, 1987, a Norfolk County grand jury returned an indictment charging Rod Matthews with murder in the first degree. After a hearing the trial judge denied the defense motion to dismiss the indictment or to remand the case to the juvenile court. In the fall of 1987, as he awaited trial, a transfer was ordered to move him from Gabler Children's Center at Metropolitan State Hospital in Waltham to another state hospital where security was tighter and where he could receive what the judge called more appropriate treatment. Wayne Stelk, a psychologist with the State Department of Mental Health, testified in Norfolk Superior Court that Matthews often discussed the murder with the other patients, and it caused psychotic adolescents to consider him a hero. With the agreement of the prosecution and the defense, the judge ordered Matthews moved to the Centerpoint program at Danvers State Hospital. He was bragging to the kids about murder. Given the severity of the crime and its obvious premeditation, the prosecution sought the first-degree murder charge. This would warrant charging him as an adult. It would mean a potential for life in prison, unheard of in Massachusetts at that time. The trial began March 2, 1988, and it was broadcast on Canton Cablevision. It was highlighted by graphic descriptions of the murder and key testimony from friends Robbie Peterson and Jonathan Cash who described how Matthews talked to them about his plans to kill another kid from school. Defense attorney John Philip White argued that Matthews should be acquitted by reason of insanity and portrayed him as a mentally unstable child whose pleas for help were ignored and whose use of the ADD drug Ritalin influenced his murderous tendencies. Rod Matthews made legal history by becoming the youngest person ever in the United States to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Rather than contest the facts, the defense relied on expert testimony that he was unable to control himself. He did not testify in his defense, and he sat expressionless through the trial. Rod Matthews also became the youngest person to be prosecuted as an adult in the Commonwealth at the time. Despite what the prosecution proved as a brutal and unconscionable murder, on March 10, 1988, the jury convicted Rod Matthews on the lesser charge of second-degree murder. It's not clear to me what the jury's instructions were, but it is clear, most likely, that they took his age into consideration. The sentence was automatic, life in prison, but parole eligibility after 15 years. There was outrage on both sides, some believing he was simply too young to face a minimum of 15 years in prison. Others... Like members of Chamoulette's family, found his actions to be reprehensible and thus confirming his inability to live in a free society. My words, not theirs. But I think if you ask them, they might respond similarly. Jeannie Quinn has been front and center in the fight to keep her son's murderer behind bars. More on that in a minute. Rod Matthews has been in custody in Massachusetts since he was 14. That's 1986 and much has changed since. The Matthews case is among the top one-sided when this topic comes up. As is the 1995 case of Eddie O'Brien, the 15-year-old Somerville boy and grandson of the city's retired police chief who was charged with murdering his best friend's mother. He was a gentle giant, six foot four, 260 pounds, a teddy bear, they called him. It was a gruesome attack. 42-year-old mother of four, Janet Downing, was stabbed 98 times in her house. Her son's friend, and their neighbor in the Prospect Hill section of Somerville, just two miles outside of Boston. It was Eddie O'Brien, sentenced to life without parole for first-degree murder in October 1997. A decision by the state's highest court introduced new pain, especially for the Downing family. They thought they were safe. Now, eventually the person convicted of murdering their mother may face freedom. And yes, I will do a Janet Downing story. In 2013, the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that sentencing juveniles convicted of murder to life in prison without parole is unconstitutional. The court called those sentences an unconstitutionally disproportionate punishment when viewed in the context of the unique characteristics of juvenile offenders— The Massachusetts ruling came after the U.S. Supreme Court's 2012 ruling that mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles was unconstitutional. In that decision, the Supreme Court focused on judicial discretion. The court said not allowing a judge or jury to consider the defendant's age and other factors violated the Constitution's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Simply put, experts on juvenile justice say The courts recognize that juveniles, due to age, brain development, and other facts, are different than adults and should be treated differently. According to a WBUR report from 2015, Josh Dohan, the director of the Youth Advocacy Division of the Committee for Public Counsel Services, said the SJC's ruling took it a step further from the Supreme Court ruling, under which a judge could still issue a sentence without parole. By saying no matter what someone does as a juvenile, they will have the option of parole. Dohan goes on to say their ruling basically reflected that any kid who could be rehabilitated should have another chance, not be guaranteed, but should have another chance at life out in the community. These rulings don't guarantee lower sentences or parole for juvenile offenders. Massachusetts passed a bill in 2014 allowing parole for all juveniles convicted of murder under a three-tier system. It was signed into law by then-Governor Deval Patrick in July 2014. Juveniles convicted of first-degree felony murder become parole-eligible after serving 20 to 30 years. Juveniles convicted of first-degree murder with premeditation become parole-eligible in 25 to 30 years. Juveniles convicted of first-degree murder with extreme cruelty and atrocity would become parole-eligible after a minimum of 30 years. There were 60 or so offenders in the prison system convicted as juveniles and sentenced to life without parole that defaulted to a parole eligibility term of 15 years as a result of the court's rulings. Rod Matthews was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to life with a possibility of parole in 15 years. His conviction was appealed in 1995. A Suffolk Superior Court judge denied a request for a new trial. His defense tried to implicate Robbie Peterson and Jonathan Cash in the murder plot of Sean Ouellette. Rod Matthews was first eligible for parole in 2001. In that hearing that December, Rod Matthews was 29 years old. He'd served more of his life in prison than out of it. Close by, Sean's mother, Jeannie Quinn, cried as a family member held a picture of her son. After his 1986 arrest, Matthews was taken off Ritalin. Once free of the drug, he changed. It had clearly stunted his growth, and maybe it did contribute to violent urges. His parole request was based on that, that he was free of violent thoughts. He was well behaved on the inside, while the state denied his first parole request. His good institutional behavior and his expressions of remorse were acknowledged. Sean's family were required once again in 2007 to convene and listen to Sean's killer state his case for release. This time, Matthews reportedly expressed remorse for his actions and claimed that he could never forgive himself for what he had done. He showed visible emotion and insisted that years of therapy had rid him of his violent urges, which he attributed to his parents' marital problems rather than his original insanity defense. And reportedly, he did send a letter to Sean's mom. I don't believe she wanted to read it. The board rejected his bid by a vote of five to one, as the majority concluded that he still did not have a clear grasp of why he committed the murder. Five years later, in 2012, the third hearing was due to take place. But Matthews withdrew his request just days before the hearing date without offering any reason or explanation and leaving the family reeling after months of emotional preparation for facing Sean's killer again. On March 29, 2016, Sean's family rallied for a third time to hear Matthew's new attempt at parole. And for a third time, he was denied by the Massachusetts Parole Board. The ruling was that he must remain behind bars for another five years before he can ask for release from state prison. In a five-page decision, the board unanimously concluded that Matthew should remain in prison. It is now 2021, five years since his last parole hearing. He's due for another, his fourth. Parole hearings in Massachusetts are open to the public, by the way. Rod Matthews remains in prison today. Prison ID W44614A. He makes his home at MCI Shirley, medium security facility in Shirley, Massachusetts. I don't know when and if he could see release. In March 2016, the time of his last hearing, his family was waiting to house and employ him. It is not clear if circumstances with his family have changed. I did read that his older brother Kenneth G. Matthews Jr. of Mansfield passed away on September 23, 2016. That was six months after his last parole hearing. I'm not sharing this to be cruel or suggest that his family deserved any of this. They did not. I'm saying it because it's unclear what circumstances now surround a potential release for Rod Matthews and what support he may or may not have. Maybe nothing has changed. His father is in Florida. His mother and surviving siblings are here in Massachusetts. They all left Canton. Today, Rod Matthews is 47 years old. Sean Willett will be 14 forever. He will always be that pudgy kid who loved fresh baked cookies. Jeannie Quinn is about 70 years old now. I hope she may find some peace in her golden years. I know for her, they don't feel very golden. And I hope she doesn't live to see her son's killer go free. Rather, when he does one day go free, may it be long after Sean's mom has passed on to be with him. Thank you for listening. That concludes part two. Sean Millette, Canton, Massachusetts. Please follow the show. Listen to the show. Subscribe. Rate and review. Those are my favorite words. Rate and review. I will read them on next week's show. Here's another one. Five-star review from Walk Trot, Foxtrot. Checks all the boxes. Well-researched. Soothing voice. No inane chatter. Clever. Well, Thank you i'm gonna keep the inane chatter at a minimum i oh, like all the other stuff thanks for indulging me anyway all right subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts follow the show online at crime of the truest kind facebook instagram at truest kind on twitter tiktok you can email me anytime crime of the truest kind at gmail.com hit up the merch store uh, i put a couple new items up I like your phone case, phone cases, the snazzy. All right, until next time, lock your goddamn doors.